Your vote can end homelessness and housing need. How? Visit votehousing.ca and pledge to vote housing. Tell political parties and candidates running for election that you want a Canada where housing need and homelessness are a thing of the past. Join Vote Housing, a national nonpartisan campaign to end homelessness and make housing safe and affordable in Canada. Visit votehousing.ca for more because this election is about housing. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home's Special Election 44 series. Join co-host Stefania Secha from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness and Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door as they interview various experts about the critical election issues related to Canada's housing and homelessness crises. Be informed when you head to the polls. Now enjoy this special election episode of On The Way Home. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door, one of your hosts. And as always, I am joined by the very talented Stefania from the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. Steph, how are you? I'm good. I'm I'm good. Excited for the election. I'm excited that it is around the corner and almost over. <laughs> Although it's been really fast, it's been a lot of work. But uh, yeah, excited for that. And and uh, yeah, how are you doing? Good, good. And, and the election is on everyone's mind um, today. I was uh, up talking with some clients at Blue Door and talking to them about why this is important to them, what they're hoping for, and and listen, housing is on their minds. Uh, right now they're in emergency housing so they're hoping for more affordable housing and quickly too so these are exciting times ahead and speaking of which that election we have some special guests today do you want to tell us about them yes absolutely so uh today's uh this is another podcast episode part of our special election series that we're doing and today's podcast episode is really focused on platform analysis uh with the focus on housing and homelessness so i'm really thrilled to introduce our three panelists today who are all experts and i just can't wait for this conversation um and hear you know some guidance when I go to cast my ballot as well. So I would like to introduce uh, at the top, Garima Talwar Kapoor. She's the Director of Policy and Research with Maitri, a charitable organization committed to advancing systemic solutions to poverty through a human rights approach. We also have Justin Marchand. He is Métis and was appointed Executive Director of Ontario Aboriginal Housing Services in 2018. Prior to that, he held the titles of Director of Corporate Operations and Programs Delivery Manager and has been with the OAHS since 2009. And he was most recently selected as Chair of the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association's Indigenous Caucus Working Group and is also Board Member for CHRA. And finally, uh, last but not least, we have Ricardo Tranjan. Is a, he's a political economist and senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives Ontario Office. Previously, Ricardo managed the City of Toronto's Poverty Reduction Strategy Office and taught in universities in Ontario and Quebec. Welcome, a big welcome to the three of you. Thanks so much for having us. 
Well, thank you for joining us on the show today. We are, are hoping, because you are experts in the field, that you folks can help us highlight and analyze some of the platform policies the parties have put forward uh, with a big focus, uh, of course, on housing and homelessness. I'd like to ask each of you to start out by giving us your first impressions or what they were of the party platforms as they relate to solutions to housing and homelessness. Great. Thanks so much, Michael. And thanks for the invite, Stefania and Michael. It's great to be here and great to talk about this with uh, my friend Ricardo and, and Justin and getting into some of the weeds on really important housing policy issues. Um, I would argue, and I think many of us would argue, that housing is the defining issue of this election. I think going into it, parties probably thought that COVID and recovery and renewal was going to be the defining issue. And I think that our political leadership has been caught a bit flat-footed. You know, that, that really it is the cost of housing that is top of mind for people alongside a host of uh, affordability issues, but housing is routinely coming up at, at the top end of the spectrum. And so I think when we sort of look at the different party platforms and, and we assess where they're sitting, a lot of ink is, is being written about ownership and supply. And so if you look at what the Liberals are proposing, they're proposing uh, 1.4 million new, um, new and repaired or renewed uh, housing units. The Conservative Party is saying that they'll build 1 million new housing uh, units. Um, the NDP is saying that they'll build or create 500,000 more affordable housing units. But I think it's important to put all of this into context. And so Scotiabank released a report earlier this year that pegged Canada's housing supply shortage at about 1.8 million uh, units. And so when we look at that and, and that estimate, it sort of assesses our per capita housing supply ratio compared to the OECD average. And then we start to see, okay, if our housing supply shortage is at about 1.8 million, you can start to see how the 1.4, the 1 million, and the 500,000 affordable units start to stack up. Um, but again, I think a lot of the discussion is on market housing, it's on ownership, it's on market rentals. And, uh, you know, there is no such thing as housing affordability without affordable housing. And I think that should be the mantra of our sector. Um, you, you can't uh, get housing affordability unless we have deeply affordable and moderately affordable rental homes for people. And this is where I think the NDPs proposal to create 500,000 new units, uh, affordable housing units, starts to uh, make, make a dent in, in the pressures that we're seeing. Um, I don't see a lot on homelessness, unfortunately, and, and I think that um, given what we've heard or learned over the past 18 months in the worst way about the importance of housing in our well-being, um, it's, it's not great and it is upsetting to see that homelessness is not um, top of mind for the parties. Definitely. Um, Buju, Michael, uh, Stefania, and, and as well to my uh, guest colleagues, Garima and Ricardo. Um, agree with what uh, Grima said so far. Um, I think it's a potential start, 
um, housing has fortunately, unfortunately, uh, becoming a, a major political issue. Um, you know, unfortunately, in the sense that we are in the middle of a housing crisis and those of us who have been in the sector have been seeing this uh, coming for decades. And certainly those who have been living it, uh, those who have experienced homelessness know that, you know, um, that they've always been in, in, in a housing crisis uh, per se. So um, I think it's fortunate in the sense that uh, housing is showing up on the front page on the homepage of many major media news outlets now, and you're seeing it being discussed uh, at the at the dinner table, so to speak. The evening news is covering housing and homelessness uh, crisis that we're in. So, I think it's good in that sense that that the rest of the population is is starting to see this. And unfortunately, unfortunately, many people in the general population that that are housed are starting to see it in their family and friends that this isn't just a them those people uh issue it's it's a every person issue and um whether it's homelessness or affordability for even um even young educated people coming out of school with bachelor's degrees having difficulty finding affordable houses i mean it's uh, and then you know that it's cascades, uh, cascades from there. So um, I also think that there's a growing realization that you can't have solely a market-based solution to an issue that the market, by definition, is not designed to provide. So um, I think that realization is starting to eke its way into the all three major political parties um, that have national representation. So I'll take that as a good sign, but we have an enormous amount of work to do. Hello everyone. And um, thanks for the invitation. Great to be here. I wanna start by agreeing and slightly disagreeing with both Karima and Justin and that yes, um, housing, uh, turned out to be one of the core and the most um, prominent issues in this election. And yes, that is good. Uh, it is good that we're having some sort of national debate about housing, but that debate thus far is of really poor quality. And so I think the challenge now is to once now that we have everyone's attention, it is to start up talking about, you know, the difficult questions and the real issues. I find quite puzzling that the platforms of all the major parties are actually very similar. The language they use to describe both the problem and the solutions that they're proposing is actually very similar, which just goes to show for me anyways, that we're not really tackling the difficult questions. If everyone is talking about the same and somewhat agreeing, um, we're not talking about uh, the differences as, as, as Karima has pointed out between non-market and market solutions. We, we're not talking about that as explicitly. Um, we are not talking about the fact that home ownership is not for everyone. And it seems that's gonna be for fewer and fewer people. Hence, let's talk about 
what we need to do to support the economic right or the rights of tenants, right? We still a little bit, I think the, the especially the liberal platform is the one that's most blunt on this and is still talking a lot about everyone has the right or, 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 or should be able to buy a home. We still kind of stuck a little bit on that, um, on that paradigm. Um, the NDP dials down a little bit on the white picket fence kind of dream, but it still focuses a lot on either the affordability, which we tend to think about lower income households would be able to qualify for that, or uh, home ownership, which are the high income, high end of the income spectrum of tenants. The problem is most of tenants fall, at least 60%-ish of tenants fall somewhere in between of those two ends, and we're not talking about that. So I think I think it's it's a, it's it's good that we're talking about it, but now uh, let's really talk about it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I I think it, it was really interesting to see that shift happening within that by the end of the first week of the writ dropping, seeing housing emerge um, as an issue and then sort of keeping pace the last couple weeks now. Um, so I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Um, and, you know, I think we all remember when the federal budget dropped and one of the glaring gaps um, that I think a lot of us were expecting to see was the announcement of, uh, or the lack thereof, of an announcement of an Indigenous national housing strategy. So I'd love to hear um, from you folks about what you think of the promises being made by some of the parties where they're actually addressing it in their platforms. I'll, I'll start out there, Stefania. Um, initially when the national housing strategy uh, when we knew it was going to be released and you had words from our prime minister who said there's no relationship more important than our relationship with indigenous people. We, we saw that as signaling that the prime minister was serious about reconciliation efforts and serious about, about at least starting to close the gap, although even just closing the gap is, is unambitious in itself. But we, we thought that there's some signals, right? That um, that Canada is taking this seriously and that the fact that urban indigenous people are 52% worse off than, than mainstream population in terms of housing outcomes, that we were really gonna take a step forward when that was released several years back. When you look at the national housing strategy, despite what the prime minister said, we were in the back half of the strategy, which to me is, is kind of the opposite of being the most important if you're in the back half of the book. Um, and then, as you said, Stefania, the fact that an urban indigenous housing strategy was left out when 86% of indigenous people in Ontario and over 80% across Canada live in urban areas, um, you just, it, it, it left us really confused. Um, so it, we thought that six years would be more than enough time uh, to get things going, especially when, when indi urban indigenous housing providers from across this land got together uh, over eight years ago and agreed on what was important, agreed on what the highest priority needs were. When we did the research, when we put together uh, the solutions when we basically did the government's homework for them and presented a very reasonable plan 
uh, all we needed was their support. And six years, frankly, to make a decision is just is is beyond unacceptable. It's 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 disappointing um, that that our government didn't take that opportunity. When we look at the platforms that are that are out there right now, uh, the Conservatives, I think, really sense that frustration. Uh, they use the word um, ignored. Um, uh, that the current government has ignored uh, the urban indigenous population with respect to housing. Um, I think they're, they're, they're sensing that. Um, and the Conservatives did, did use the language. I'll give credit where credit is due. Um, they recognize the need of a for indigenous by indigenous uh, plan. So I'll give them kudos for that. Um, the Liberals then took a, took a couple weeks to release their platform after uh, looking at everyone else's homework and um, indicated a commitment of $300 million for urban Indigenous housing. And just to put that in perspective, that's less than 1% of the need um, that's been identified uh, for urban Indigenous housing. So if, if less than 1% is a, is a commitment, I mean, of course, we're going to take, um, you know, take and use the best uh, of the resources that we have. But to say that that is a, a strong commitment, I, I, I think would be fooling ourselves. And then, uh, you know, the, the NDP has been supportive, but again, looking back on actions, uh, I have to wonder why the NDP didn't, didn't use the legislative authority and power that was given to them by voters in the last couple budgets. Um, when, when, you know, yes, we had the pandemic going on, but there's a lot of other priorities that have actually been highlighted by the pandemic, housing being one of them and homelessness. And so, you know, there was really a hope that, that the NDP would have pushed the current government to, uh, to do something in those last couple of budgets. So um, I can't say that I'm real excited by any of the platforms, but uh, I'm hopeful that again, you know, the conservatives recognize the issue and hopeful that, that the liberals, um, that the Liberals are starting to put something on paper, even if it's taking this long. Well, I, I know little about um, Indigenous housing needs and, and, and perspectives, but as, as an, sort of an outside observer and paying attention to what's happening, what strikes me is this is an example where the problem is clearly political and not technical. Um, sometimes with the sort of the national housing crisis, we can get a little bit dumbfold by the magnitude of the problem and how many houses we would need to start even making a dent on the supply side and the kinds of um, deep um, affordability um, issues that's a fairly large and growing number of the population is growing. You all, all can sound a little bit sort of overwhelming. Um, but with, in the case of, of indigenous housing, it's, it's where the problem is much more clearly scoped. As Justin said, um, some communities already have done sort of the homework for the government. Um, it is more easily um, to, to intervene and to target action, and yet we haven't seen it. And, and that's where I think it's, it's 
um, is an unfortunate example and reminder that um, in many cases, and particularly in housing, there's a political problem, is the big elephant in the room, and we cannot pretend that it's just a problem in, in search for some, you know, very elaborated technical solution. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't add much to what Justin and Ricardo have said. I think Justin's really captured what's in the party platforms. You know, I'll just say for context, what after years of governing, looking at the amount of money that's being allocated for an Indigenous housing strategy is really paltry. $300 million is for the first year, but in the out years, it's $5 million. And so I just... There is in no, um, there is just no world in which anybody can justify that to be adequate. Um, and the fact that the governing party right now feels like it can put that forward um, without even a modicum of embarrassment, to be really <laughs> blunt about it, is is um, I, it is just appalling. And I think that's something that needs to be called out and routinely called out. It's not something that's going to uh, get fixed in one year. $300 million isn't going to fix it in one year. But to have to go to Treasury Board next year, if they win the election, to ask for more money for subsequent years becomes that much harder. And so I just don't know why they didn't put the money where or put their money where their mouth is. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and when I was seeing those commitments, I, I was like, you know, there's sort of the vagueness of like, yes, um, we recognize this is an issue and we want to do something about it. Um, but it just still feels like there is such a fight there. And I really, really expect that whoever does obtain a minority or majority government after September 20th, this is going to be one of those like ongoing big fights and like, just we're here for it because it's, it's, it's egregious that it's taken this long and, um, really, really needs to be rectified. Like, I don't know what we're waiting for at this point. Um, and, and so to sort of continue on, um, in your opinions, what are some of the bolder commitments? to building new housing stock that you've seen. Um, do any of the platforms, like in your opinion, of course, go far enough? How much farther do you think they need to go to actually address the housing crisis? Yes, Karima already gave us a sense of, of the numbers and the order of magnitude of the need. What, what I like to say about this is what surprises me is that all the proposals out there are sort of pitched in an ad hoc, one-off kind of way. So within the next number of years, we will build this number of units and we will be in partnership 
with the private sector? Should they find our program interesting enough and lucrative enough for them? And in partnership with nonprofit sector, if they manage to mount the capacity to participate in a government program. And those are all two big ifs. And what we don't see out there is um, just a plan to build a large number of houses every year, year after year, for however long it takes. Because that's the kind of, of plan that we need. And we need to follow through with some sort of plan like this for many years, maybe for a couple of decades, to be quite honest, to really change the supply and demand side. Um, anything short of that really won't do it. It won't do it because right now in Canada, we lose affordable units quicker than we build. So even all of these promises we are hearing, however many they are, even if they come through, chances are, chances are by the time they're built, the net gain is gonna be much lower than what has been promised right now. So we just need to build, build as, as a policy. That's what we do. That's what the government of Canada does. We build affordable house every year, tons of it. And we're gonna to continue to do it for how long it takes. We don't hear that. And obviously we're also not hearing what would be for me an immediate kind of response. And in the meantime, what we're gonna do, we're gonna purchase or we're gonna rationalize a large part of the current stock and we're gonna keep it or make it affordable. That's the kind of policy. If you wanna solve a housing crisis, that's what you do. We buy, we nationalize for now, large parts of it, keep it affordable and we're gonna build tons of it for the next year. Any other kind of program saying, we're gonna build this many units in a couple of years, it's, it just doesn't, it doesn't excite me as much. Yeah, to add to what Ricardo was saying, I think, you know, um, the Liberals, to their credit, have talked about the financialization of housing in their platform. And that's really important, right? Because housing, uh, uh, housing is a human right, right? But now that housing is seen as a commodity, the, the ability of, of market actors, be they real estate investment trusts or pension uh, pension funds are going in and buying huge uh, swaths of affordable housing and then they hold on to them. Um, when people move out, they uh, hijack or increase the the rents that are available. And so that is is eroding the stock of affordable housing that's available. Um, and so what the liberals have they mentioned financialization and they mentioned that they're going to, you know, if elected, that they'll they'll introduce some tax uh, legislation that will help control the financialization that's taking place. And I think that's helpful from, from two perspectives. Um, I think that our sector often focuses on investments, which is really, really important, but we also need to focus on regulation and, and the the rules of the game. And we're, right now, we're not focused on the rules of the game because the, the depth of need is just so high, right? And so we continuously focus on the supply question, which is really important. But to Ricardo's point, if we're not looking at the regulatory side and we're not looking at the rules of the game and who gets to come in and play Monopoly with our housing stock, um, we're going to be, we're actually not going to be able to catch up. So we need to build lots 
of, of publicly owned housing. The Conservative Party is saying that they will release 15% of federally owned lands if elected. What I'd like to see is, okay, release those lands, but build lots of publicly owned housing on that. Um, and that might, that, that might be um, a far shot. But I think that, that those are the kinds of messages that people need to hear. Um, and, and that's, that's the only way that you're going to start to um, sort of um, turn down the, the heat that we're seeing, not only in, in all segments of the housing market, but because there's so much heat in one sector of the housing market, it's having ripple effects throughout and people living with low and moderate incomes um, are feeling the effects. Um, but aren't represented politically enough to, for their concerns to be heard. In terms of uh, in terms of those policy choices, there's two things I'd like to touch on. First is one of the uh, uh, recent parliamentary reports that came out um, out of the uh, the Huma Committee uh, around urban, rural, and northern Indigenous housing, and I just wanted to to loop back to that topic for a second. Um, I do want to give credit to all three parties, uh, the Conservatives, the Liberals and NDP who came together for that, for that issue. All three unanimously agreed that an urban, rural and northern Indigenous housing strategy is absolutely needed. So I, I do want to thank, thank all three parties for that and members of that committee to, to say miigwech for that. Um, I would like to point out, however, that um, Appendix A that was submitted by uh, Brad Viss and the Conservatives, just to paraphrase them, basically said, yes, we all see that there is a huge need here, there is a gap, and we, we acknowledge that, but government, you need to put a timetable on this and you need to put a commitment of resources to it. And so I just, I wanna say miigwech to, to Brad Viss for, um, for putting that in writing and for you know stating the obvious. Um, the second thing, you know, Ricardo mentioned that that uh, that this is a political issue. Um, I'd like to to push back on that, not on Ricardo's opinion per se, but on the thought that this even needs to be a political issue. This is about people, um, and you know, when you do have that all-party consensus that housing is important. Then, then I'm, and you know, maybe I'm a little simple-minded, but I'm confused. Then, if we all agree this is important, if we're all here representing people, then what's stopping us from moving forward? We are one of the richest countries in the world, and can we? Do we not have the intelligence to figure this out? I, I think we have a real, a lot of really smart people in this country, and we have a lot of really, really intelligent politicians and intelligent bureaucrats, I, I think we have the capacity. I, I really do believe that we do. So it's, you know, uh, what's getting in the way, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, you know, from lastly, just from a financial perspective, for those that can't understand uh, or who are not there yet in terms of realizing that this is about people, um, from a financial perspective, it really does not make any sense for our uh, social safety net to be acting as a, as a backstop in so many ways, in so many expensive ways 
um, and I'm just talking from a financial perspective here, makes no sense for our emergency room departments to act as homeless shelters. It makes no sense for our ambulance who are overwhelmed with an over opioid epidemic right now to be dealing with homelessness issues. It makes no sense for our police officers who should be out there um, doing what they love doing, which is keeping people safe. They don't need to be carting people away who are, who are homeless. Um, the solution to, to homelessness, I mean, the first step is a home. Um, and of course we need the supports that, that go around that as well too, but let's, let's give our frontline workers uh, a, a break. Let's help our police officers, our ambulances, ambulance drivers, our nurses, our doctors, and let them deal with what they're trained to do. And let's the rest of us um, use use some of our intelligence and and help with the homelessness and housing issue. And if we do that, I think that is it's been proven that it's far less expensive to deal with issues on a preventive basis rather than reactive. And we can do this for, for pennies on the dollar, really. Um, it just, it makes a lot of sense to me. And again, these are, this is our friends, our families, our neighbors we're talking about. This is about people, it's not about politics. So well said, Justin. I think of, you know, when you're in school and you see the, the fire poles and they say, in case of emergency and, and every case should not be emergency. It's very expensive. It costs lives and it costs a heck of a lot of money. You're right. Let's switch that focus to prevention. Let's make this election about people. Now, people are heading to the polls and, you know, in the next few days. And, you know, I want to know what you hope they will consider when weighing their options and casting their ballots. As you know, most people or many people don't look past the headlines or the sound bites, and, and they're not uh, policy and an, uh, analysts. Um, what guidance would you like to leave our listeners with when weighing their options this election? Justin, we'll start with you. Sure, two things. Um, and ask your candidates this question. Uh, you'd be surprised at how magnified your voice is uh, because we don't have a lot of political engagement by citizens in this country yet. Um, so your voice is, is magnified when you email, text, call a candidate. Ask them two things. Uh, number one, are you serious about reconciliation with Canada's Indigenous people? And number two, um, what's your plan for housing? And the more you ask that question, the more that gets sent up the chain to uh, campaign managers and those who are writing the platforms. And ask all the candidates in your area, not just the three largest parties, but ask them all um, what their position is on, on each of those two issues and let them speak to it. Thanks. Ricardo, your thoughts? Yes, on the same sort of um, line than Justin, if you have a chance to engage directly with your candidates, I would ask some tough questions about housing. I would start by asking, what do you mean by affordable housing? I see the leader of your party talking a lot about that. I see the other leader of the other party talking a lot about that. Can you tell me what's affordable? What do you mean? How much will they cost in our neighborhood for that affordable rental unit that you want to build? Um, I think those are some, some, some tough questions that would put them in a spot and, 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 and hopefully um, allow them to engage with you. Another question I would ask is, but what's the plan for tenants? I 
you know, I'm not going to buy a house. I can't for a number of different life circumstances. Perhaps I won't ever need um, a subsidized housing, but I also not going to buy. I'm a tenant probably for many years, probably for my entire, maybe for my entire life. What's the plan for me? What are you guys doing for tenants? Um, why are we not talking about um, a national rent control policy? Some people will say, ah, but that's a provincial matter. Well, child care was a provincial matter until two weeks ago, and now it's that's all everyone is talking about, right? And an issue is an issue. If we're gonna solve it, we're gonna figure out and we're gonna solve it. So why are we not talking about rate controls and controls and vacancies? And, and why are we not talking about some sort of bill that would protect tenants in the case of high unemployment rates or in the, in the case of another lockdown so that provincial governments are not the ones decide whether or not tenants can be evicted while they are being ordered to stay home um, and create that very sort of awkward and extremely sad situation we saw in the past months, people being ordered at home and one, on the one hand, and a lot of people doing that because they have a home to be sheltered in while others are being evicted, sometimes you know, using the police to put people out on the streets during a pandemic. Like why, why don't we, we're not talking about some sort of national and, and um, legal and more permanent solution so that we never see that again in, in this country. Um, so that's the kinds of questions I would ask. What do you mean by affordability? What are you doing for renters? Um, and uh, where do you stand on these issues? Is your party willing to have a sort of publicly driven solution to this housing problem, or are you just going to be forever asking the private sector to come solve our problems, which hasn't worked so far? Absolutely. And last but not least, Grima, what's your advice? You know, I, I'd start off with just saying and everybody just really intrinsically knowing that you cannot have housing affordability without affordable housing. So whether if at the ballot box, your issue is I can't save, I can't save enough for a down payment. I can't make my mortgage um, costs. I can't afford rent. I can't find a place to live because vacancy is so tight. And wherever I look, the units aren't great. And, you know, uh, there's no, there's no regulation around the quality of, of units that are coming up for rent. Um, regardless of your issue, we have to deal with the deeply affordable and moderately affordable housing crisis that we have. And in addition to the things that Justin and Ricardo have said, I think that 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 mantra, that adage of there is no such thing as housing affordability without affordable housing is absolutely needed. When you think about the fact that there are over 280,000 households on social housing wait lists in Canada, um, we've we've got we've got a long way to go um and so we've realized through the pandemic again the hard way that all of our lives are connected and your well-being is important to my well-being and and vice versa and um this is ingrained in indigenous teachings and unfortunately i think we had to a lot of us learned the real hard way and we have to extend that to housing. And so, um, you know, take your housing issue to the ballot box, talk to your elected or talk to the people that are running in your riding about it, but really ask how your 
how your actions um, can create downstream uh, effects throughout the housing market. And if that's good or bad, it really is about the type of future you live in, your kids will live in, and your grandkids will live in. Well, well said. Now, listen, you are all doing impactful and important work. We want our listeners to be able to find out more. So we'll start with Grima. Where can they go? Sure. Um, we're at Maytree.com. Um, you can also find us at Twitter um, at Maytree Foundation or just, sorry, my apologies, at Maytree underscore Canada. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Grima TK. Very cool. How about you, Ricardo? We are at policyalternatives.ca. And um, we also publish a lot of analysis through our online magazine. It's called The Monitor. And on Twitter, I am Ricardo underscore Tranjan, T-R-A-N-J-A-N. Hard to remember sometimes because we don't often uh, look up ourselves. How about you, Justin? Ontario Aboriginal Housing.ca. We've got links to our Twitter and uh, Facebook feed on there. Follow us, like us, whatever you got to do. And uh, appreciate everyone for listening through to the end. Absolutely. And, you know, this was just even more informative than I hoped it would be. Um, it's so, you know, we hear so much during an election from the candidates. Um, so I think it's always refreshing to talk to folks who this is their day to day that they don't just care about this because there's an election being called. So again, thank you all so much for taking time out of your day to join us and uh, help our listeners uh, make the right choice for them for them and for all of us on September 20th. Thank you all. Thanks so much. Wow, Seth, that was, uh, man, just, just like a sponge taking that all in. And you hear that, that ongoing theme about affordability, affordable to who? And as well, mm -hmm. I think about that, that focus on home ownership. I mean, that is, and unfortunately, sometimes I think, is this more about figuring out who can, you know, where the votes are going to come from? So we're going to focus on, on those people. Uh, to Justin's point, this has got to be about people, not about votes or politics. Let's make this election about people. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, it's it's interesting, too, because, you know, since the rules changed for charities and nonprofits, basically allowing them to become a little bit more vocal, a little bit more, you know, politically like uh, grand, not grandstanding, <laughs> but more polit politically active as long as it's nonpartisan. I'm, I'm kind of hoping for this election and in future we see, you know, the conversation really shifting. So the politicians, we're not just hearing from them and what their promises are, but they're really listening to us as a collective, um, as well as from the experts, as very much so, as well as people from lived experience, so that when we're designing these strategies, we're involving the folks that they impact. So I really encourage everyone, um, as our experts talked about the platform, read the platform with the lens of how this affects you and how, so how it affects your neighbors. So yeah, hopefully this was as informative for our listeners as it was for me. Definitely helps me uh, make my choice. Yeah. And if you want more, follow these people, not in person, please. We don't encourage that. <laughs> but on social media, they do incredible work and there's so much information out there. I find it so hopeful and we're so, uh, so fortunate to have them take time out of their business schedules to come on the show today. Another great episode, Steph. Thanks for co-hosting as always. Thank you. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then. 
I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.